these readings about conflict are always very uh, challenging to confront. As we read these stories, of course, I know I and probably many of you uh, call to mind times in which uh, maybe you didn't handle conflict uh, the way that our Lord prescribes, or perhaps uh, maybe you did do some of these, and yet it didn't bring the reconciliation that you hoped. Uh, And so it is easy for us to sort of dwell on perhaps some of the failures of living up to this gospel, but there are also, of course, some great examples through history of how this had worked. And one very famous example, we have to go all the way back to the 1300s. Okay, the 1300s, I know many of you who know your history probably know that the 1300s was not the greatest century for the Catholic Church. It's not a century that we look back uh, with a great deal of pride. Uh, There was, uh, of course, uh, a lot of corruption in the church, and it was a very confusing time for the faithful. And one of the most confusing events of the 1300s was an event known as the Avignon Papacy. Okay, the Avignon Papacy, to make a long story short, uh, was when the newly elected Pope, uh, Clement V, basically left the city of Rome and moved to Avignon in France. Okay, he basically abandoned his post, went to France where he wanted to be. It was a very selfish move on his part. Uh, And again, this confused people immensely. Uh, The Pope wasn't available to lead the church. He wasn't available to handle the day-to-day operations of the church. And he also became very heavily uh, influenced by the French monarchy. Okay, the secular government started to, to be able to influence the church in an unhealthy way. And the Avignon Papacy, it actually lasted for a total of 67 years and spanned seven different pontificates. Seven popes total lived in Avignon. Uh, Well, it finally ended because of a young woman named Catherine, who we know as St. Catherine of Siena. All right, Catherine, again, was a young woman. She was not very well educated, but she was very smart. Okay, we have to remember that distinction. There are some very well-educated people who are not very smart, unfortunately. Uh, Similarly, of course, there are some people who are not very highly educated who are very smart. All right, well, Catherine, she didn't have much formal education, but she was very bright. She loved the Lord and dedicated her life completely to Him. And despite the fact that she had no official authority, she became very influential in the life of the church. She, like so many others, was very disturbed that the Pope was no longer in Rome. And so she traveled all the way to Avignon and was able to meet the Pope personally. Okay, and while she was there, of course, while everyone else is, is gossiping and expressing their frustration and, and things like that, she actually goes to meet him face to face. 
and she confronted him about how his actions were harming the church. And to his credit, to the Pope's credit, he listened to her and moved back to Rome. And I do think that Pope Gregory XI, who was the Pope who finally moved back to Rome, I do believe that he deserves some credit. All right, he's the Pope, and somebody without any authority in the church just comes up to him and critiques him. She critiques him, and he actually listens. Now, Pope Gregory, he's not known to be the holiest of our popes, uh, but he does deserve credit for this. He listened, he moved back to Rome so he could lead the church properly, and this uh, of course, the Avignon papacy sort of, you know, did damage to the church beyond the 13th century, but this was the start, perhaps, of the healing process. Now, I know from personal experience, and I know many of you do as well, that receiving criticism is not fun. So I, again, am impressed that the Pope actually responded. The readings, of course, however, shed light on our need to receive criticism graciously. All right, both the first reading as well as the gospel acknowledge the necessity of confronting people who are perhaps in need of correction and also perhaps shed light on, on how we can deal with fraternal correction when it comes our way. But of course, in the first reading... The Lord speaks to the prophet and he tells the prophet that he has a responsibility to warn people of God's judgment. He has a responsibility to do that. If he doesn't warn the people, God is actually going to hold him responsible for the sins of the people. Now, of course, a few weeks ago we talked about how through our baptism we're also prophets. And part of that does come with this similar responsibility. It's not easy to do that. It's not, not easy to have those, uh, those confrontations. And yet it's part of our responsibility. In the gospel, of course, Jesus' words to the, apostle, to the apostles even sheds light on the fact that there's going to be conflict... In the church, Jesus anticipates that there's going to be conflict in the church and that, that one, one of his disciples is going to sin against another one of his disciples. He expects that we're going to fail from time to time, but he also expects that when people do fail, other members of the church are going to try to bring them back. And again, it's not easy to do that it's very difficult and very awkward to confront people for even simple, no-brainer things like mass attendance or what have you, let alone something that perhaps drifts into more awkward territory. And so while it is important for us to learn how to offer fraternal correction to other Catholics gently and lovingly, we also very often need instruction on how to receive this type of correction when it's offered to us. 
After all, a culture, a church culture in which fraternal correction is received well, will make it easier to give correction to other people when it needs to be given. And there's many things we could say, but one of the most important things that we need to remember when we receive fraternal correction is that if somebody actually offers some type of correction like this, it means that you're valued and that you're respected and that you're loved. Okay, if a person did not value you, okay, they would not even say anything. They would just go about their business. So if a person does give those types of, of fraternal correction, chances are that person really does value you a lot. Another aspect that we can cultivate within us, and, and this is something that could be applied to any situation, I could give this part of the homily uh, at every Mass, but it's to cultivate a greater desire for holiness, to create a greater desire for holiness. Your desire to live the Christian life well, your desire to be the best Catholic that you can be, your desire to be the best disciple that you can be. That's very important. And so if this is really something that we desire, fraternal correction can be very helpful. Of course, successful people, no matter what they're successful at, athletes, actors and actresses, singers, of course, even just people who are good, ordinary people who are good at their ordinary tasks. People who are successful tend to take criticism well and apply it very well. All right, every famous actor had to receive boatloads of criticism. And even though they were probably embarrassed, and even though they probably didn't want to acknowledge it, they actually accepted it and received it and acted on it. And that criticism is actually part of the reason that they found success. It's the same thing with discipleship. If we want to live the Christian life well, and I hope that every person here does want that, receiving fraternal correction can be very important. Of course, Jesus' teaching here while very good in and of itself, is, is pointing us to a deeper reality, which is unity. Right? Jesus' words here are to increase the unity among Christians, the unity among his disciples. When fraternal correction is given lovingly and received with gratitude, the bond of unity is certainly restored and certainly even strengthened. And when the church is united in mind and heart, that's where the church can be even more successful at its mission, more successful at establishing the kingdom of God. Jesus says, and I don't understand why, but he teaches that even our prayers are more effective when we're united and when we're in agreement. He says, if two of you agree about anything, it shall be granted by my Heavenly Father. So if we sometimes feel that the prayers in the church aren't being answered, 
Perhaps it's because the disunity in the church is very, very real and very, very harmful. Again, even our prayers are more effective when we're united with each other. When the members of the church are unified, Jesus' presence among us is magnified. For he says, where two or three are gathered together in his name, there he is in the midst of us.